In the early 20th century, a tradition began of celebrating March 8th as International Women's Day. In the early 1980s, it expanded to Women's History Week and a few years later to Women's History Month. Among the many reasons Women's History Month is significant is that looking back at the stories of our past can be a powerful way of inspiring and informing our work to create a better future. To that end, join me on a brief tour through the expansion of women's rights in the U.S., often referred to as the waves of feminism. And pay particular um, attention to that metaphor of a wave. That image can be helpful in highlighting a pattern that continues today. That is, a, a wave builds up, a wave of growing advocacy for gender equality, and then at some point it crests and then crashes Um, often through some combination of either accomplishing or not accomplishing a goal that brought people together and or a patriarchal backlash. To begin to trace that pattern, the first wave of the women's movement began in the U.S. around 170 years ago in Seneca Falls, New York, with the first women's rights convention in 1848. That wave slowly built up for about 70 years, and then it crested in 1920 with the passage of the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, that the rights of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged on account of sex. There's a wonderful story about the passage of that amendment that when Tennessee became the 36th state to ratify the 19th Amendment, that final and deciding vote belonged to a 24-year-old named Harry Burns who had planned to vote no, and then he got a telegram from his mother that said, be a good boy and vote for suffrage. So... As one example of the impact of how long these political waves can take to build and to crest, only one, only one of those original signers in 1848 in Seneca Falls that signed the Declaration of Sentiments, only one lived to witness the women winning the right to vote um, 70 years later. Sadly, the struggle for voting rights for all, especially in regard to race, continued and extends to today in some disturbing ways. For now, looking to the next wave, after four decades of rebuilding, the second wave of feminism uh, began to seriously build in the early 1960s, emerging alongside many other countercultural movements at the time. That wave grew in size and strength and achieved many successes, including the passage of Title IX in 1972, uh, which prohibited sex discrimination in schools receiving federal funding and really created nothing short of a sea change in athletic opportunities for girls and women. In 1973, the Supreme Court decision Roe v. Wade secured greater reproductive justice for women, even as we've seen that slowly chipped away at in recent years. And despite many successes, second wave feminism began tragically crashing with the slow death of the Equal Rights Amendment, which said that equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged on account of sex. It turns out we wanted to do that unfortunately. And although the ERA passed the House of Representatives and the Senate to triumphant celebration in 1971 and 1972 respectively, it was defeated a decade later when North Carolina tabled the amendment and Florida and Illinois rejected it. 
After a backlash to the women's movement in the 1980s, many historians date a third wave of the women's movement to the rise in consciousness around sexual harassment triggered by the law professor Anita Hill's allegations against Supreme Court shall I add credible allegations against Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas in 1991. The sexist way that the all-male Senate Judiciary Committee treated Professor Hill inspired many women to run for Congress the next year, resulting in the election of five new female senators and 24 new female members of the House of Representatives. The second and third waves of the women's movement have also become increasingly intersectional, embracing race and class and sexual orientation and transgender perspectives, even if there's still a long way to go. We're still too close historically to fully discern you know, the precise beginning, end and beginnings of third wave, fourth wave, as was spoken about in the spoken meditation. But the more important point is that there actually are no permanent waves, whether in the women's rights movement or other justice movements. I should also hasten to add that the wave metaphor does not mean that those decades excluded, you know, before 1848 or between 1920 to 1960, by no means were they feminist free zones, right? But when a wave crashes, another has to begin the process of rising up again. And any surfer will tell you that as glorious as it is to ride a wave, you can't spend all your time on top of a wave. That's just not how the ocean works. But in the words of my colleague, the Reverend Rebecca Gordon, our job is to keep scanning the horizon for the next wave and to ride it when it comes. Surveying the ocean of our society today, there are lots of statistics, sadly, that I could quote about the state of systemic racism and the need for ongoing acts for equality. To limit myself to one representative example, a study published just last year in the um, prestigious journal Science showed that at age five, girls and boys tend to be equally confident, this is age five, tend to be equally confident that people of the same gender can be really, really smart. During the ensuing years, boys maintain their fate, their tend to, in the ability of their own gender to be really, really smart. But six- and seven-year-old girls, six- and seven-year-olds, that's where the belief in female brilliance begins to rapidly crash. And the girls who lose this belief tend to steer themselves away, for example, of games that are earmarked for really, really smart kids or perceived that way. That statistic is horrifying, but it also reminds me of a story, just one among many, that reminds us of the importance of how we must work um, for change. Do any of you know the name, any of you that weren't here for the first service, uh, know the name of Nancy Grace Roman? Let me tell you about her. Nancy was born in 1925 in Reno, Nevada. She lived on the outskirts of town, and because of the low light pollution on the desert on clear nights, and because in 1925 there were less lights than there are in Reno today, uh, as a child she could see a breathtaking number of stars. Frederick's actually not bad compared to really big cities. You can actually see some stars in the night sky, but if any of you have recently been to a really dark place in the country or the world, you can actually see about 2,700 stars. That's how many we should be seeing if we did a better job about Uh, limiting light pollution. That's another sermon, but really important. But as a precocious child who maintained a belief in her brilliance, Nancy Grace Roman formed an astronomy club with her friends. In high school in the early 1940s, this smart young woman asked to change her schedule from the expected course, which was for women to take a fifth um, 
class in Latin, a fifth year of Latin, and she wanted to take a second year of algebra. Her guidance counselor scoffed to her face and said, what lady would want to take mathematics instead of Latin? Looking back, Nancy said, that was the sort of reception I got most of the way. Nevertheless, she persisted. And she went on to earn a Bachelor of Science in Astronomy from Swarthmore College in 1946 and a PhD in Astronomy from the University of Chicago in 1949. To share with you just one story from that time, it's pretty hard to earn uh, a PhD, she, uh, but at that time she had an extra hurdle because her dissertation advisor would, when, when, would pass her unexpectedly in the hallway, would always pretend that she didn't exist and that he just couldn't even see her. That was the sort of obstacle she faced. Nevertheless, she persisted. And in 1959, she joined NASA in the early days when NASA was only six months old. So at that point in 1959, we're a a decade before the first moon launch in uh, 1969. She went on to become NASA's first chief of astronomy and the first woman in a leadership position at the space agency. But more than either of those accomplishments, she is most prominently remembered as the mother of the Hubble which she helped design. Also, crucially, in the words of Dr. Weiler, Dr. Roman's successor at NASA, he says, it was Nancy in the old days, you know, before the internet, before Google, before email and all that stuff, who really helped sell the Hubble telescope. She helped organize the astronomers who really convinced Congress to fund it. And so initially inspired by those clear desert skies of her childhood, she helped make possible the first large optical telescope in space. And free from the distortions of the Earth's atmosphere, the Hubble telescope has given us incredible images of deep space. Dr. Roman retired in 1979, but if there's any um, Lego aficionados uh, here today, you may recall that two years ago when Lego created a 231-piece set of women of NASA, one of the four women featured was Dr. Nancy Roman, along with a little Lego Hubble telescope standing beside her. I'll also add that Dr. Roman was a lifelong Unitarian. In her words, my willingness to buck tradition, especially when people told me that science was not a role for women, as they often did, that may have been influenced by the fact that I had been brought to think away from tradition. Unitarianism got me thinking independently and was part of what gave me the courage to fight tradition. Dr. Roman died two months ago at the age of 93. Her celebration of life was held where she was a longtime member at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of River Road in Bethesda, Maryland. Her story is one we need to keep telling, and I think she would be pleased to know that this month, NASA has scheduled the first all-female spacewalk, March 29th. Along these, yeah, <laughs> along these lines, if you're looking to dive deeper into the subject, a great book I've been reading recently, published in 2017 um, from the UUA's own Beacon Press, is titled Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong and the New Research That's Rewriting the Story. It's by the award-winning science journalist Angela Saney. The title's inspired by the correspondence of Mrs. Caroline Kennard, uh, who lived near Boston, and the famous scientist Charles Darwin. 
after overhearing someone arguing for the inferiority of women, past, present, and future, based on their reading of Darwin's books, Mrs. Kennard went straight to the source and wrote to Darwin himself in December of 1881, this is near the end of Darwin's life, with a request that surely he would clarify what she assumed was a misinterpretation of his writings. Sadly, Darwin wrote back that the evidence appeared to him to be all around him, that leading writers and artists and scientists were almost all men. He assumed this inequality must represent biological fact. We have copies of these letters, and Mrs. Kennard's initial hopeful letter to Darwin is written in this neat, impeccable script on a small sheet of cream-colored paper. After receiving his reply, her second letter is, shall we say, not as neat. It turns out that fury affects penmanship. (laughs) There's a lot to say about the many important points that she makes in this letter, but I'll let her closing line serve as a summary. She said, let the environment of women be similar to that of men and his opportunities before she be fairly judged intellectually his inferior please. As a point of reference, keep in mind, just uh, since a few years, even a few years later, in 1887, only two-thirds of U.S. states at that time allowed a married woman to keep her own earnings. That's just one example of um, systemic misogyny at the time. What seems self-evident, if you look around, is that sex and gender are on a spectrum. Sure, the tallest people are typically male, but there are also plenty of women taller than some men. And it's not the case that men are all fully on one side and fully one thing and women the other. Men are not made of snips and snail and puppy dog tails, nor women of sugar and spice and everything nice. Most of us are in that overlapping, messy middle. But sexist stereotypes in society too often bias boys and girls in different directions, and then we pretend those directions are natural instead of socially constructed. We can also recontextualize the argument that because men are taller and faster and stronger, those men are the natural, rightful leaders. As the Emory University anthropologist Melvin Connor has written, if brute strength is a, lar- is a significant part of why male supremacy existed historically, then in an age when strength matters less and violence seems to be declining, is it not a better world if women have more influence? We need all of us working together to build the world that we dream about. Remember that series of feminist waves that we've been tracing and how they both crested and crashed. Along those lines, let's consider the Nordic countries as a case study for the troubling um, patriarchal backlash that continues to happen. On the one hand, we can celebrate that the Nordic countries have some of the strongest laws in the world supporting gender equality. Iceland, for instance, has among the highest levels of female participation in the labor market. Why is that possible? They have heavily subsidized childcare and equal parental leave for mothers and fathers. In Norway, since 2006, the law has required that at least 40% of board of directors must be women. That's incredible. Those are goals we should aspire to reach quickly. On the other hand, Nordic countries also have a disproportionately high rate of intimate partner violence against women, a backlash of toxic masculinity in response to rising gender inequality. But the truth is that a loss of privilege is never the same as reverse discrimination. 
a loss of privilege, male privilege, white privilege, able-bodied privilege, heterosexist privilege, none of that is the same as reverse discrimination. All of that resentment is unwarranted. And so much remains to be done to dismantle sexism and misogyny in society and in ourselves. For now, I'll leave the closing words to Angela Saini from her book, Inferior. She says that science has given us the ability to control our environment in ways that no other animal can. We have birth control that can stop women getting pregnant. Within decades, it may be possible to delay menopause far into old age. In such a world, it may seem strange that we're taking so long to make sexual equality a reality when the power to do so is entirely within our human hands. We can, can, what has been socially constructed, we can socially reconstruct. The job ahead for researchers is to keep cleaning the window that we might see ourselves as we truly are. The facts are what will empower us to transform society for the better into one that treats us as equals. We must do so not because equality merely makes us civilized, because it is deeply connected to what makes us human.